The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The following talks are offered by the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies. Please visit our website, www.sati.org, for more information on our courses. So I want to begin with um, some movement, and I don't know if this arrangement is going to work with the sound. Yeah, I guess if you would just... I can hold it. Hold it, yeah. Put, it, put in. it in your pocket. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So just want to start, um, invite everyone to stand up. This is typically the point in the sequence of a day long or a retreat where it's kind of nap time. And or so we'll just do a little bit of movement, then we'll do some sitting. So we'll do... A few kinds that kind of help equalize our energy a little bit. So, first of all, maybe just stand up and feel the ground. Notice if you feel tension anywhere. You can kind of shake out a little bit if you feel any stiffness or tiredness. <clears throat> and slowly, let's uh, raise the arms up. Raise the arms up towards the ceiling, come up on your toes if that if it can work for you and come back down and slowly let the hands come forward, kind of drop the neck and just let yourself go into a hanging position, let the hands come towards the floor. Many of you know this from yoga. It's also a Tai Chi movement. Not to push too much, just let yourself hang And then slowly come back up, <clears throat> vertebrae by vertebrae. And bring the hands up again towards the ceiling slowly. Again, you can come up on your toes, even arch the back a little bit. Come back down. And again, let the hands move forward towards the floor. Just let your upper body just give way to gravity come down into a hanging posture and slowly come back up We'll do a very simple uh, Qigong movement that probably some of you know. Just let the hands come out to the side, start coming up, get to the shoulder length, let the palms come up. Breathing in, reach up, and now come back down. Hands kind of dropping as if coming through water, breathing out. And breathing in, hands come up, palms towards the ceiling, shoulder width up to the top, and then come back down. 
And one more time. Breathe in. Hands towards the ceiling. Come up. Breathe out. Hands come down towards the floor and just stay at standing posture. We'll just finish with the reverse movement or the complementary movement. Let your hands one on top of each other around your belly area. And breathing in, let your hands come up through the center line of the body up to the top and then come back down, breathing out. Breathing in, hands up the center of the body towards the ceiling, let the knees be uh, loose. Breathe out. And one more time. Hands up, breathe in towards the sky and then coming back down on the sides. And now just standing. And we'll move right into now uh, sitting meditation for a short period. Welcome back. Hope lunch was good. Anyone go to some? I know some of you went to the solar demonstration. Was, um, was it tasty? Yeah, very good. So the theme for the next block, again, we'll have a talk, maybe about 25, 30 minutes, and uh, time for discussion, then the walking, and then we'll go to our fourth uh, block. The theme for this block is what does or what might a socially engaged Buddhist path of practice look like? And one way to frame the question is I wanted to invite uh, Kim, who was had been talking, I think, over lunch, uh, one way to really ask this question in a, in a focused way. So if you could do that and... It'll be a nice way to start. Okay, so we talked a little bit about, uh, at lunch, about uh, paths that are liberating or not liberating. And um, we talked about concentration and yoga as well as vipassana practice. And it's generally understood that the Buddha taught that vipassana practice is the liberating path. And so we wanted to know how social engagement or acting in the world is that liberating in itself? How does it relate? Maybe that's one way to frame the question. Mm-hmm. Is it a supportive practice or is it itself liberating? Mm-hmm. So, no, it's, so that can help heighten things. And I'll tell, I'll tell another story that actually um, is provocative you know, in, in the sense of uh, casting doubt on whether they're can be liberation in social engagement or in a path of social engagement. So um, in 1992, I was in Thailand for a period of time 
And I had just, I, I was uh, staying in a monastery in um, northeast Thailand. It was the monastery of Achan Mahabua, who is well known, still alive in his 90s. And what? Is he still alive? Just, yeah, I was. Yeah, no, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, but but um, alive until very recently, in, in his nineties, um, and I I met him. He was, uh, I guess, probably eighty or so. And I stayed at the monastery for a while. I had just come from about two weeks of meetings with the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. You know, in we had had, I think, one week in a center near Bangkok that was um, kind of the, they actually call it an ashram or in the Hindu style, but they, it was connected with Sulak Sivaraksha, some of you know his name, and uh, people lived there. And we had the, a week of meetings there, and then we went to, uh, I think, Chiang Mai and stayed at a monastery in Chiang Mai. And I was very enthused, had met some great people. I think it was my first time at a uh, meeting of the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. So I was very excited. So I also wanted to do some more traditional practice. So I went up to this monastery uh, in, uh, I think, near Udon Thani, up near Laos. That's where the monastery is. And and uh, was very graciously given a cottage to practice in where I stayed for some time. And every afternoon, I, you know, there would be kind of tea and people would hang out a little bit together and talk. And uh, there weren't that many English speakers, but there, the, at that monastery, there was a, um, actually the senior, the most senior Western monk in Thailand was living there from, originally from England name, uh, Achan uh, Panawato. He died about five or six years ago. I think he's probably close to 70 at that time. So, so. And um, I talk, would talk with him every afternoon. And I think initially, I told him about my enthusiasm for socially engaged Buddhism. <laughs> and he responded like this. He said, social work is all well and good. But if you really want liberation, you have to uproot the kalashas. You have to uproot greed, hatred, and delusion, in other words. And in order to do that, we need the conditions of a monastery. We need the conditions that really support us to be practicing all the time. You go out into the world, it's too distracted, too distracting. And, uh, you know, you won't really get very far with liberation out there in the world. And I think my response at the time was something like, <clears throat> you know, something like that. I was, it was definitely, I received it as a kind of a challenge, you know, and because I felt uh, committed to being, exploring this path. But... I think that's it's a very uh, very rich question, really. In, in some ways, uh, really, in some sense, pr- proposing to answer Kim's question 
negatively that there is no liberation out there in the world. You're just helping people and maybe it's improved some things, but there's not really a path of liberation. So I, I intuitively felt that uh, I had a different and more, um, what, uh, more optimistic view of, the, of uh, engaged practice. And so uh, I think that, but that challenge has stayed with me, you know, that provocative question really has stayed with me because I think it is a very real question as to the depth of practice of those who are out there in the world. I think it's a very real question as how deep is the practice? Uh, how much are we really, how much is there really transformation? Even as we can be helping others because the aim of practice is the transformation of suffering. It's the transformation of of consciousness. So, so that question stayed with me. And over the next years, I think a lot of my work, along with others, has been to try to articulate more a path of practice. So I think I, what I'll do is I'll say a little bit about how that exploration has gone. And then I think we, I want to have us go into small groups, and then we'll have a little bit of large group time. One of the ways that, and this, this particularly occurred a lot in the, the, the work that we did with the BASE program starting in 1995 was a kind of laboratory for this because we were worked with 30 training programs, six-month training programs, and we were trying to make connections between inner and outer. And we're trying to see what worked, what do we need, how do we start to articulate what the elements are of a path of practice. You know, we know, you know, one way to think about it, you know, there are different, a few different ways to think about it. One way is to think about it is to think about the traditional trainings. The traditional modes of Buddhist training are divided into ethics, meditation, and wisdom. You know, what would the counterparts be? And how could there really be basically spiritual depth? That's really what we're talking about. How can there be spiritual depth when we're in the world and what really supports that kind of path. So we could look, for example, I think some of my initial reflection was to try to say, how do we look uh, at the, this, these three traditional trainings and develop an expanded sense of ethics? You know, one that we talked about before that would include our actions in the world and let us learn more fully um, who we are, you know. So, for example, we, we might really look, in terms of ethics, look radically at how much I'm interconnected. You know, and some of the depth dimension, I think, that we get from the engaged practice is partly in disclosing more subtle ways that we're trapped or caught. You know, so, for example... Um, one way we can start is by looking at at um, social categories like gender or race or class. Part of the contributions of movements in the last 30, 40 years has to let people see how we're actually stuck, lost, self-centered, and unconscious about those dimensions and that actually working on those areas 
really contributes to a sense of liberation. And yet they're, they're, they're subtle. This is maybe related to uh, Kian's comment about the Tibetan practitioners who might be doing deep practices but participate in a system that actually may result in the suffering of some. You know? And so when we look to these different dimensions, a lot of it might be more, you know, not, not so well um, developed before we look. You know, and certainly one doesn't find an uh, articulation of how we get stuck in those categories. We don't find that in traditional Buddhism. You don't find it in any, we don't find it in any traditional religion except maybe in seed form. And so some of it was to look at that or look at uh, how do I understand myself as participating in larger systems in which my choices make a difference? And could we say that uh, I'm, you know, it's a form of delusion not to see how I'm conditioned by being a consumer, by having certain levels of comfort, by having uh, certain levels of um, conditioning around gender or race or class or sexual orientation or whatever. And so some of, some of the answer to that question comes in articulating we might say, a broader concept of liberation. What does liberation mean? You know, part of what happens when traditions evolve, it's true in Buddhism, is that the spiritual ideal changes. And so the spiritual ideal that we have from the teachings of the Buddha is that of the arhat, primarily focused on individual liberation. And we know that in Mahayana, the spiritual ideal becomes that of the bodhisattva, more of a relational or social model. And so the question is now, what does the very meaning of liberation mean? So it's not as if we uh, take for granted the traditional sense of what liberation is, but it may be changing. We may want to say someone is liberated who's worked through conditioning on those dimensions as well. It's an open question. Does that, you know, does that, um, does that make sense? So, that's that's one way to start looking at it. As, you know, for, my, for myself, my own way of working with these issues especially was to start um, developing sets of principles, very much, I think, like Thich Nhat Hanh developed those 14 principles of the Tepian order. And so especially in collaboration with uh, Diana Winston, we began developing lists of principles. At first we had like five, then we had seven and then we came up with 10, which seemed, you know, in many traditions, 10 seems like a good number to end up with. Eventually, for my book, I took these 10 that are on the handout, 10 Guiding Principles for Socially Engaged Buddhism. But if for my book, I actually had 11. And my publisher said, no way. <laughs> no way, we have to cut one. So the, the one that got cut out involves skillful use of conflict. <laughs> Ironic a little bit. <laughs> There's a conflict and the principle about conflict got cut. <laughs> so anyway, um, but what we, so I want to give a little bit, This I want to give basically one kind of model of what practice looks like. And I think of it as an expanded model of practice. So what we did, we started first um, looking at certain identifying certain principles. And this, this is not comprehensive, but it's a good starting point. And this is 
these are essentially the chapters in my book. So we wanted to say that you know, the first chapter is having to do with ethical grounding. This is an important principle. The second one involves bringing mindfulness into action, into action and interaction. The third principle is around intention and motivation. The fourth is about how do we open to suffering and so forth. And uh, other principles involving a sense of interdependence and, you know, again, not, not, these are a little arbitrary, but they're, they, they fill out a certain kind of path. There's others on anger and so forth. And then what we found out, uh, very interestingly, is that for each of these, and this, this is what I'll be giving now actually isn't in the book. I originally had a theoretical chapter for the book, and my editor said no, <laughs> you know, which, which actually lost a lot of some of the depth, but I later published it elsewhere. But anyway, I'm going to give it to you now. So it actually can, can um, show some of the ways that this path gets filled out. So I'm going to use the marker. Let's see if I can make this, make this work. Very good. So one of our one of our initial insights uh, was that um, we could take a given principle and look as as to how it might be applied in a number of different domains. So we could, for example, um, we could talk about three different domains. Maybe I'll, I'll just maybe make, um, maybe make a division like this into three, well, into three blocks here. And we could talk about what we would call the individual domain, the domain of our own, essentially of our own experience. And a lot of traditional practice primarily focuses on how do we transform our own experience. And we could also start talking about what we called the relational domain. And this would be, you know, and then the great simplification, but this would be our work in organizations, families, groups, and so forth, communities maybe. It could, you know, it could go from a dyad to, you know, a few hundred people or whatever, something like that. And that um, that's another place where we practice. We practice individually, but if we're doing engaged practice, we also are interested in how do we how do we practice in our relationships, right? And we want to know how that works. And then we also could talk about the collective domain. And this would be our participation in larger systems, in economic systems, political ecological systems. And so actually what we found by and large was that we had a lot of well-developed individual practices, but that if we were developing a engaged path of practice, we would want to also say, what does practice look like when you're dealing with issues in an organization, in a family, in a group with the 
society. And actually what I did in the book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, is I took this model and I basically filled, took a lot of the principles and filled out what the practices start, what the principles start looking like in the relational or collective domain. What I left out of the book was something that makes it a little more subtle and interesting and complicated, which is that um, we could also talk about different actors or different spiritual subjects. And I, I remember one morning when I was, I don't know when this was, in, you know, maybe we were at a retreat or something. I think I was at a retreat. I just woke up one morning and been working with this model for some time and said, well, it's not just that there are three domains, but there also really are different, uh, we could say there are different actors or different spiritual subjects. And we could also talk about uh, the individual as a practitioner. These are really, we could say there are three kinds of practitioners. We could also talk about a relational type of practitioner. We could talk about a group, could be a unit of practice. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh sometimes talks about how the Sangha is that which will get enlightened. But we could talk about the Sangha as a kind of practitioner. We could also <clears throat> talk about the collective as a practitioner. And I'm going to give some examples to kind of make this concrete because it could be a little abstract so far. Now, let me, let me give an example of what this might look like. If we take a principle like I looked at in the book uh, called, um, one of the principles is called opening to suffering. And it's something that, you know, we work with the teaching of the two arrows and it gives us guidance for how to work open to suffering. And I can open, I can open, um, I could open to my individual I could do, be doing individual practice and I can open to individual suffering or I could open to what's there in my own experience. Or let me, let me, let me back up. Um, let me back up a little bit. I think maybe say it a little different way. What we, what I, what we found is that we could kind of map out, we could talk about individual practice that's focused on the individual on a kind of on our on our core nature. And so traditional vipassana practice where one does individual practice looking at uh, the nature of the body, the nature of the mind, the nature of emotions, it's kind of like the individual exploring human nature. And I took, could take that to be the individual looking at individual practice or the the individual nature. Does that make some sense so far? And I can also, we could also have a form of practice in which the individual is looking, is exploring the relational. You know, I could be, instead of just simply looking at emotions as emotions, I could be looking into my family conditioning. I could be looking into, I could be working on how I develop more kindness or love. Metta practice might fit here. You know, it's developing, it's a kind of practice which relates to others. We could say it's a kind of relational practice, but the individual does it. And I could also talk about an individual practice in which I look into how I've internalized collective dimension. 
I could do a kind of individual practice in which I try to look at, let's say, my gender conditioning or my conditioning as a consumer. I could also maybe be in a group and be doing different kinds of practices in a group context, which look into, you know, it could, they could be focusing on some of the um, individual material, either my individual material or, you know, using the group to support looking into the individual. We could also have a group, let's say, that could look into the relational dynamics within the group. And it could also look into how the group, again, maybe has internalized the um, collective dimensions in each of us. Then we could also talk about something more collective. And this is getting a little more complicated, but you, we can think of something like a nonviolent movement. Or, <clears throat> again, the examples that I thought of, we could think of what does it mean to have a collective um, agent or a, co- a collective practitioner dealing with individuals. I was thinking of something like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, which had a collective body essentially bringing people in in ways that were personally healing for individuals. That would be an example of something like that. And we could also maybe, again, this look, have a collective way of working with particular groups, maybe to work, look to help certain groups or to um, work with certain group issues. And we could also have, as it were, the collective acting on the collective, which would be like a social movement. Maybe a nonviolent movement would be a collective process of dealing with the collective. Now, some of this isn't so well worked out or it could be a little bit vague or they're not some... What's interesting is that there are not many examples for most of this. Where does traditional... Buddhist practice fall for the most part. Mostly here, in one of the nine parts of the matrix. That was suddenly quite interesting. You know what it means is that most of, and and we probably want to have forms of spiritual practice for all nine of these. You know, as we have some. You know, people like Gandhi and King talked about social movements as being a kind of spiritual practice within within the group. So it became very interesting for me, you know, and, and we and, and Diana, we were thinking, well what there's what it invites is a tremendous amount of creativity. A lot of this is very undeveloped. What do some of these practices mean? If we want to have an engaged path, we have to be very creative. And I'll just I'll just give a few kind of concrete examples. So one example, which I've worked a lot with, is a speech practice. And very interestingly, in, you know, I've uh, been a co-teacher a number of times at seven-day retreats at Spirit Rock on speech practice. And what I have found in working with speech is that uh, speech can be a tremendously rigorous practice. And for me, having worked with this, in the act of speaking there can be a kind of formal sense of practice that's just as refined and developed as being on the cushion. I'd have to spell that out. Has anyone been on the speech retreat? Have you been on that, Tracy? No, no, okay. In any case, um, 
What I found in developing this was that a lot of creativity was needed to to um, develop the elements of speech practice so that it became a rigorous practice that could be really both contributing, I think contributing to a new model of liberation, but also in many ways pointing out uh, aspects of liberation that we wouldn't see unless we were interacting. That's what that's something that's interesting. That it's been interesting to me to hear just stories. I mean, I mean anecdotal stories. I remember one story of someone who had been a monk without Chan Cha for ten years, and he he um, came out of being a monk, got involved with a, in a relationship, and you know was it was disastrous. And he said, "I'm incredibly unskilled for this. I, there are all sorts of ways I'm discovering all these." Massive confusions that I didn't know until now, you know. So very, very interesting that situations bring out these, you know, th- uh, aspects of confusion that we didn't know necessarily ahead before. And so, for speech practice, again, this is a very concrete example. I would call this sort of a relational practice, which which has a lot of different dimensions. But I found that in the traditional Buddhist teachings even though uh, speech and why speech is considered very, very central. It's part of the Eightfold Path. Uh, And even though speech is talked about a lot, it's primarily talked about in terms of ethical guidelines. It's talked about in terms of how how should one speak. One should be truthful. One should speak in a helpful way. One should come out of a good heart. And the Buddha was also talking a lot about to make sure you have good timing. Timing is very important for speech. And so we find those kind of guidelines. But I found that when I was wanting to have speech be a practice, which I could bring into interaction, being in the world, interacting, you know, writing, you know, engaging in communication, I didn't have so much guidance. You know? And so one of the ways that we started innovating and from a lot of sources was to ask, what does mindfulness, for example, look like in the midst of action and interaction? What does mindfulness look like in the midst of speech? How do we extend that? So we found ourselves extending some of these core teachings and ask what do they mean in other contexts? Actually, it may be, some of you know who know the Satipatthana Sutta know that it talks about uh, having mindfulness be both internal and external, but no one ever teaches what that means on Retreats, actually. So what does it mean? Well, we, we found that we wanted to, we developed a speech practice which could have a very simple but challenging mindfulness practice of keeping inner awareness and outer awareness at the same time. And started to articulate forms of practice that I think are really crucial for an engaged path that, in my, to my knowledge, were not developed previously. So we developed a sense of how can you keep inner awareness, even try it right now, how can you keep inner awareness and also listen to me? How can you have a tracking of what's going on somewhat in your body, in your mind, not as precisely necessarily with meditation, but it actually, there can be, that can be the basis for a whole development of a, a practice which combines inner and outer at the same time, which we can bring to a lot of other realms. Very, very crucial. And we also found in developing some of the speech practices that we could make a lot of use of disciplines like nonviolent communication and other attempts to really give some guidance 
for how to speak compassionately, how to look at particular types of language use. And so we've kind of put together a package in our retreats, which has about 30 hours of material now, for how to develop speech as a rigorous, crucial uh, practice, which is completely central if we're out there in the world. And that practice in that kind of development didn't exist to my knowledge previously. So I was thinking that in so many of these areas, we need to develop practices, you know, and again, part of what I did in my book was to try to take all 10 of these principles and say, what do they look like in an individ- as individual practices that we do on our own, as relational practices, as collective practices? What does it look like to have speech practice in an organization? You know, and it's been interesting because I've worked, I've done trainings with the Spirit Rock staff on that. You know, done, done four months of training. What does it look like to have speech practice? And mostly Buddhist centers don't know how to do anything, don't know very well. Sean's, if I can say, is at Spirit Rock, and maybe I, I know that there is a real interest in saying, how can we be at a spiritual center and have our work be a form of practice? People want that. But we don't know that well how to do it, you know. Buddhist centers particularly are notoriously bad at dealing with conflict for a host of reasons. Maybe not as bad as some places, but you know, there's been a history where it hasn't worked so well quite often. I could analyze that, but it's in part because we don't have a sense of what that practice, what, is the, what does the practice look like to work skillfully with conflict? Is that part of the training to be a member of the staff? And so you can see we begin to have a sense of an engaged path. And um, so some of what it does is it works, I think, on where we're caught in traditional ways. And some of what it does is it starts to open up a broader concept of liberation, I would say, and, and sort of discloses almost like hidden aspects of bondage or hidden aspects that we that a thousand years ago people weren't so aware of. So I think there's something that's changing as we talk about an engaged practice path, I think something also is changing in what we might say the spiritual ideal is. You know, what does liberation mean? What does freedom? What does freedom mean? You know. So that's a good that's a good place to stop. And so uh, Kim had something. You had something first, and I was going to go to small groups, but maybe this is li- maybe it's lively enough just to stay with the large group. I mean, but, yeah. I don't want to disrupt any small group work, but I, I just had a comment when you said a couple of times that you didn't think any of this work had been done before. Yeah. I wanted to ask if you were aware of the work of Gregory Kramer. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm exaggerating a little bit there. You know, he's actually um, there was a Buddhist teachers conference in June, and we roomed together. But Gregory has developed. He has con- self consciously tried to develop forms of what he calls relational practice. A little bit different. Um, you know, and we had a nice talk about the complementarity of our work. Uh, but, but um, yeah, I think, I think what you can see, or, or, you know, the people who are doing work on what does intimate relationship mean as practice? Huge area, right? It's a lot that can be said. People are exploring that still at a very early stage in terms of understandings. But, I think what this is pointing to, to me, is a sense of the need to help articulate practices 
in a number of different areas where they, we don't have it so, so much now. What does it mean to be part of an organization and have your work be spiritual practice? What concretely does that mean? You know, some organizations have explored that, some, but that's, that's, that's hard. So that, that starts to mark out some of the elements of an engaged path, you know, and, but there, there are so many areas, you know, again, in the book, I had these 10 areas and then tried to spell it out. So it involved a lot that are very traditional that get brought into wider areas. Like what does mindfulness mean in this context or this context or this context? What does wisdom mean? Um, what does, uh, yeah, what does it mean? Again, I was saying, what does it mean to see the world in a wise way? You know, this is where I said there's a need for more like a socially engaged understanding of society. So there's a lot that could be provocative or unclear. Would you like to go to small groups for a while and have a chance to actually talk about things? So let's go into groups of about, let's have them small, either three or four people. And let's take about 20 minutes or so in the groups just to see where you want to go with anything that was said or any confusion. Does that feel, how many people would like to go to small groups? How many people would rather have large group discussion? Hmm, kind of equal. Uh, let's do it, let's, okay, we'll do a formal vote. Now, that was the, how many people would like to go to small groups? Okay, I bet I'm gonna have to count. Okay, how many people would like to stay in large group? Are you counting, Lori? I think it's kind of equal. I think there were a little more on the small group. Small group, okay. Um, okay, we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll do both. We'll have a small group and then large group. Let's do about 20 minutes in small group. And um, groups of four and... See, you know, if you if each group could explore, and then if you have, if someone can be a scribe, and then maybe come up with one or two points or one or two questions at the end, that would be great. Okay, so groups of four, about twenty minutes, and well, I'll let you know with about five minutes left. <laughs>